Well, for me, this actually came straight out of my own struggles to exercise more as a grad student. When I was an engineering grad student, I'd have these really long days of classes, come home, knew I needed to hit my, you know, problem sets, get right into it. And all I wanted to do was curl up on the couch with, you know, I love novels. I'm, I was a big Harry Potter fan. So I wanted to, or like pick up the latest Alex Cross from James Patterson. I, I'm a big fan of page turners. Um, but that was not productive. I also, I'm, I was a, an athlete all throughout my childhood and played varsity tennis in college. So athletics are really important to me. And I'm basically sort of a mess if I'm not exercising, <laughs> like just an emotional mess. And I knew that, but I couldn't motivate myself to get to the gym at the end of the long day. I just wanted to indulge and I couldn't motivate myself to do my problem sets. I was spending all this time on fiction. And so I realized, oh, like maybe I could solve these problems logically. What if I only let myself read the next pages of my page turner while I'm exercising. And that just was like this magic cure for me. Suddenly I would find myself craving trips to the gym at the end of a long day. Um, I'd get in a great workout. I enjoyed it because time would fly. And I, I didn't even feel guilty reading the novel suddenly because I was doing it to get to the gym. And then I'd get home and I was totally ready to work. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, The Dot Store Domains where you can get your own custom dot store domain to set up your own site to sell products or services. You know, different from any other .com, .net, or other extension, the dot store domain really gives your customers a destination to shop for your stuff. Think about your domain name, dot store. It instantly tells people your website has a store, and so your URL does a lot of the marketing and work for you. I tried it out myself and set up my own dot store with Behind the Brand. It's behindthebrand.store. And you can find some of your favorite books from authors that I love and have also had on the show who've been here and gracious enough to give us their books at a super great price, even better than you get on Amazon. This is for a limited time, so you might want to check it out. You can get your own .store domain by going to my special link. It's a bit.ly link, which is bit.ly slash your custom store. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash your custom store. And now let's get into the episode. Katie Milkman, and I'm a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm also the author of the new book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. And I'm excited to be joining you on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with the amazing author, Katie Milkman. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? I'm the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> it's a short answer. Um, but a longer answer is that um, I thought I was going to be maybe an investment banker or a consultant. I was sort of quantitatively inc inclined in college and a lot of the people in my major. I was an engineer, but an operations research and financial uh, engineer at Princeton. A lot of folks in in that major ended up in consulting or investment banking. Um, and then I got my hooks in research. And when I was a junior in college, I did a little bit of research and I was just so into it. By my senior year, I discovered um, the magic of it when I did a thesis that was required. And for my senior thesis, I analyzed a decade of New Yorker short stories to try to figure out whether or not um, stories were actually about 
characters who resembled their authors and whether or not editorial shifts at the magazine changed the type of fiction they published. And it was so exciting. I just loved everything about crunching the data and knowing the answer to these questions I was intrigued about before anyone else in the world. And I decided to pursue a PhD. Uh, and then sort of the rest was just a trajectory that it set me on to become an academic. And I feel so lucky that I have the, the amazing job I do and I get to wake up every day and answer questions with data and talk to brilliant people and um, share my findings with students and reporters. And it's just the best job. Let's go back in the chronology if we can. I like to do this and I, I like to ask people, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? What were you thinking about? What was young Katie thinking about? Um, I'm curious about this because I know a lot of people, uh, and, and I do like to oversimplify this particular piece because uh, if you're young, um, you're coming out of school and trying to figure out what to do with your life. If you are maybe mid-career and the pandemic has punched you in the mouth, you're making a reset and you're taking inventory and you're trying to figure out what's my next move. Um, and I'm curious about signals and uh, if you got any from an early age or if you had sp specific direction from your parents, what did that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I did not want to be an academic. That didn't. That was not on my list because I didn't really understand what the job was. I assumed it had to do with teaching. And while I love teaching, I didn't have an itch to teach as a kid. I was more. I really wanted to make sure that I was doing something um, that involved as much of my intellect as possible. And I was. I didn't appreciate that teaching would be so intellectually stimulating as it is. Yeah. Um, when I was really young, I thought I wanted to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> and I think that came from, you know, like my parents romanticizing this, this field of like really smart people doing really hard work that saved lives. And so it had lots of things that were appealing to me. I like the idea of making a contribution that was positive to other people, that it was hard and challenging. and People looked up to brain surgeons. And yeah. so that was sort of like my little kid dream. And then I think I just got confused once I started to understand better what careers looked like. And, and I, I thought like something with numbers, I like math, something with numbers that I can do well, and I'll try to figure it out. And then in college, that's when I discovered how much I loved research and, and took the path I did. So you mentioned Princeton. Are you from the East Coast? I am. I grew up in Washington, D.C., in the suburbs. Okay. And what did your parents do? Um, my dad ran a small economic consulting agency actually out of our basement. And my mom was a senior executive in the government and the, um, a civil servant. Okay. So... I mean, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You know, you had parents with, with brains, and so are you, are you an only child, or do you have do you have siblings? I have a half brother who was eighteen years older than I was, so we didn't grow up together. So probably closer to an only child, um, if you if you have to give a formal definition. Yeah. Than, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm doing my own sort of pseudo psychoanalysis right now as I'm thinking about. So I have kids too, you know, and it's easy for me as a parent because um, we have a we have four children. But our our last child, although planned, there's a like a ten year gap between uh, his uh, sister and there's like a fifteen year gap between his brother. Anyway, so he's sort of like an only child and. Uh, and we with lots of parents. He has lots of parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has lots of parents, and he's like, like he's being. Um, I don't want to say like uh, prepared, but like you know, we we all have high expectations for him. He's uh, the golden child in many ways, um, 
anyway, we have we have high hopes that he's going to be amazing, uh, and he will in his own way. I'm but, sure uh, all of your kids will be amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, although you know, it is easy for parents now. It's f- easy for me to say that obviously the first one and two were sort of the guinea pigs, or the experiments where we tried lots of stuff, and now that we have more wisdom. Um, the the last two are benefiting from that for sure, without question. More um, patience. <laughs> yeah. I have a five year old, so I I can imagine how you know that experience would would help you grow as a parent. Yes, yes, yeah. The five second rule when food falls on the ground is much longer. It's more like a twenty five <laughs> second rule and things like that. But yeah, uh, so that's excellent. Okay, so your your parents uh, did they give you like. Any direction? Did they steer you in one particular way? Did they say, "We, you know, brain surgeon sounds great. Keep that up," or you should try music? Or yeah, that's um, that's interesting. Um, they definitely wanted me to do something that used uh, my my skills in math. So I was very good at math from a young age. I mean, not very good. I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't a prodigy, but like, you know, I tested well in math yeah. and um, my dad's father had been a mathematician. So there was a room, you know, a romance with numbers and a mm-hmm, belief that mm-hmm. that was a really important set of skills. They were excited about that. They thought a woman pursuing something mathematical would be great. My half brother had um, chosen to be a musician and had had a tough time. It's a tough field. And I think they wanted to see me do something practical that I loved mm-hmm. and where it would be easier to find a job. So I would say that that was as much direction probably as they gave me. Um, but that's a lot of direction. And then they were supportive of lots of different possibilities and wanted me to explore and yeah. figure out what I liked. So you, you were sort of heading towards engineering as well at one point. So how did you choose? I guess let's distill some wisdom for people who are, are trying to figure out what they should do. Did you have signals? Um, you knew that you were good with, with numbers. So you know, when something comes easy for you, you tend to like it, I think, more. Not necessarily all the time, but most of the time. Um, but how did you know, okay, not medicine, maybe more engineering? How did you make that pivot? Oh, gosh, it's such a good question. And by the way, I think it's hilarious that you're holding me up as if I could be an example, because I think my path was very winding to finding, um, I mean, it, it might look like it wasn't, but like most people, I think I stumbled a lot before I found my way. So I yeah. entered Princeton thinking I would maybe major in economics. I was a Bachelor of Arts student. Um, I hated the first course I took in economics with a passion, which is funny because now I'm probably the closest field um, to what I do is economics. I'm not. I'm sort of in a between field in behavioral science. Anyway, hated it. I just thought it was garbage. I I had a professor who read from a textbook when um, okay. lecturing. That was literally the experience. So the teaching quality was awful. And then um, I also just didn't buy the, the basic assumptions of the field that people are optimal decision makers and perfectly rational. And I just, you know, I looked around at my life, my roommates, my friends on the tennis team, and I was like, who? Which of us is optimizing? Are you kidding me? <laughs> that is mm-hmm. not what my, I'm seeing. So um, between the terrible teaching quality and the assumptions I couldn't wrap my head around, I decided I had to get out. Um, and I actually decided to go to summer school so I could switch and become an engineer. And the reason I settled on engineering was that I had a roommate who was an engineer. And I was sort of looking over her shoulder at the course catalog and thinking, wow, this looks really interesting and useful. She was taking classes on things like transportation systems and e-commerce. And I was like, "That I, 
I could be really interested in that. She's taking computer programming. So um, I decided to copy what she was doing. And I went to summer school, switched and became an engineer. And then, of course, now I'm, I'm a behavioral scientist, more somewhere in between economics and psychology. But it took me until graduate school in engineering to find my way back to what it turns out I love. Okay, but maybe here's the lesson, right? So a, a lot of us, especially those who are perfectionists or you know have those tendencies – or we want to have it all figured out in advance. We don't like uncertainty. Um, the message continues to be, and this is a theme, I would say, 100% of the time that I talk to uh, smart people who are successful, or at least doing what they love. Um, it is not a straight line from A to B or C to D or to Z. Um, you had to try on several things to see if they fit. And at first they didn't. And then alas, you sort of came back full circle, which is another lesson, which is uh, remember that sometimes, you know, it's about timing or it's about people or about, you know, um, whatever the circumstance. So it reminds me of uh, a lesson I've learned several times, which is just because you failed today doesn't mean you're going to fail tomorrow. The opposite is true. Just because you succeeded this time doesn't mean your next project's going to succeed. Nothing is guaranteed like that. And so it's great to hear that you recognize that it was just the teacher, not the particular subject that you hated as much. Uh, it seems like you give it another shot. And then that helped you pivot and really find your stride. Absolutely. And I, I do think so much of... I mean, there's there's a lot of luck in life, um, but there's also a lot of power in making your own luck by by exploring. I think too often when I, you know, I'm a college professor now, so I see a lot of undergraduates trying to find themselves. And one of the things that I think is most important is that they explore because yeah. sometimes something sounds on paper like it won't be a fit, but then it really can click in a magical way once you get into it. And And the more you experiment and explore, the more you can discover what makes you tick and and you're going to be great at what makes you tick as opposed to you know something you're sort of accepting as your path yeah i mean if, if we haven't overstated it sometimes this process of elimination to find out what you don't like doing or what you know doesn't resonate with you or doesn't light you up is just as important as what does right um, absolutely I mean, if you think about medicine, modern medicine, this is the way medicine is done. It's intelligent guessing. Okay, maybe it's not this. Let's try. Okay, right. You don't have this. Now let's figure out <laughs> a little, what else A little not. calibration. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little zing to the medical field, but... Um, <laughs> well, I think most fields, anytime we're trying to solve, there's a lot of guess and check. Yes. And calibrate. Yeah, and, and we're glad that there is, right? Because um, I was talking to someone the other day who I'm mentoring and, and she's graduating college and I could tell she was looking at me like, wow, you know, I wish I had your experience. And, and I just had to stop her and say, okay, so you know that the only way to get experience is by doing stuff and making mistakes. And then those mistakes, if you can learn from them, they become experience. And that, that experience then translates into wisdom and then when you have wisdom, you can make better choices. But it's just, you know, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat. And the only way to get what I've got is just to do the work for 20 years. So um, don't sweat great it. Great advice. Sounds like you're a great mentor. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I'll let other people be the judge of that. But I, I, I think what I do have is I have empathy because I've, 
I remember what it was like um, and often remember and reminded what it's like to be a new learner, to be a total amateur. Because I'm not someone who, it's taken some time to get this way, but I don't feel uncomfortable being uncomfortable. I'm willing to put my stuff out there with the caveat that I can come back and play another day if I fail. I tend not to do stuff that is all your chips in on, you know, 13 black, roll the dice, win or lose. I don't do that. To me, it's too risky. I love that. I also, it makes me think of this study by um, Ting Zhang, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, looking at how valuable it can be to try to empathize with somebody who's a novice when you're experienced and you're trying to coach them and give advice. I love that that's your natural go-to. It's really important. So Not everyone does think like that. <laughs> well, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I could go on, but um, I'm curious more about being an academic, um, and let's face it, there's a lot of criticism, uh, and rightly so, towards academics these days because um, a lot of schools or teachers, you know, we're in pursuit of the grade and not pers- not particularly focused as much on the learning, perhaps. Um, and we see it, you know, coming out after graduation, getting to the into the work field. It's like. All right, you have a lot of book knowledge. You could taste. You're well. You're good at taking tests, but you have no, no real skills. Um, what made you? What was so attractive about teaching and writing and and the research that you're doing now? What is it, what is it about that? Well, the part of academia I'm in is sort of the antithesis of everything you just said, because I work in business academia. And in business schools, our mission is really to be as connected to applied settings as possible while still having a basis in data and science. So I love the part of the ivory tower I'm in because it is so focused on practical problems. And I basically... um, go and work with companies and try to figure out, you know, there's some problem, there's some challenge, there's some insight they're lacking um, that I think is fundamental and could be broadly applicable. And then I try to solve it scientifically. And then once I have an answer, I get to go back into the classroom and teach my 150 bright Wharton MBA students. This is the way, um, say, you know, to, to build lasting habits. If you have employees you want to encourage to to form healthy habits in the workplace, or if you're trying to promote more productivity in a a volunteer labor force, this is a strategy you can use that we've scientifically tested that will improve outcomes. So I really enjoy the kind of work I do because it's so applied. And at the same time, we're trying to draw generalizable insights so that we could port, you know, what we learned from working with Google or 24 hour fitness or, um, you know, pick your, pick your, Walmart and and say this would work in other organizations too. It's not something really specific about their location or their customers or their employees, um, but but we're learning an insight about the world and it's a really practical one. So uh, I I love that aspect of academia. And I, I don't think the students in MBA programs for the most part are chasing grades. They're sort of past that point in their lives. So I'm lucky to be teaching in, in a place where it's really a desire to figure out, can you give me insights that I can take with me when I'm going to be an entrepreneur or a banker or a consultant or um, some other type of organizational leader that I can use? That's what they're looking for and connections and network. So I think I landed in a really lovely part of academia given my interests. So you've written a book with a title that 
is potentially polarizing. I mean, you can you can say lots of different words, but when you say the word change, some of us, I don't know, maybe it's me. I sh- maybe I should be more self-aware. Change is not easy, right? And not everyone loves change. And But you've written this book, How to Change. You've thrown down the gauntlet. It's like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> Uh, what 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 went into? I'm curious about what went into the title. Did you have any consideration for the pushback this might get, or and did you do it on purpose? Um, there was no question that the book was going to be uh, sort of everything I knew about the science of behavior change. Yeah. So there were other titles we toyed with, like change for good or change, <laughs> or and then we ended up with how to change. But th- there was no question it was going to be about change because that's what I study and what I felt compelled to write a book about, what I felt I could contribute to the world that would be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure any of those alternative titles would have been any less provocative. <laughs> and so so, so what, uh, what did you learn about change uh, by doing the book? Like, people's apprehension, like what prevents people from changing or wanting to change? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I, and I should say, I didn't, I, I learned a lot from writing the book about how to tell stories, how to communicate um, ideas to, uh, to a, a broad audience rather than an academic audience, which is the audience I'm used to talking to. Um, but I, I think really the learning about how to change was the 20 years of research I've done, and then it was synthesized in, in this book. So yeah. the key the key nugget, I'll say, at the heart of the book, it's meant to be sort of an overarching review of everything I know. But the key nugget that holds it all together is uh, the insight that often when people are prescribing strategies, and, and of course there are many books that say they're going to help you change, there's a focus on a single solution, a, a one-size-fits-all, sort of set big audacious goals, visualize success, you know, whatever the, the author's favorite technique is mm-hmm. that has some basis in science or not, depending on the author and, and their angle. Sure. Um, but too often, I think that that leads to a missed opportunity. So when I've looked at what works in organizations and with individuals who are trying to change, I've found that they're actually is rarely a one-size-fits-all solution. And it really, the answer is it depends. And it depends on what the obstacle is that's blocking change. Uh, and in some situations, the obstacle is, you know, oh, I forgot. I like I don't take my medication every day because I keep forgetting to do it. Um, in some settings, the obstacle is, you know, it's just really dreadful to do the thing I need to do. It's like a chore to go to the gym. I, I dread it. And so I don't do it. Um, and, you know, there's a long list of different reasons. I'm not confident enough to do it. I don't feel like I have the right impetus to actually get started on this change. All of these different obstacles exist. And whichever one is obstructing progress, you actually need to tailor your solution to that obstacle. And so that's a key lesson at the heart of the book. And then the book breaks down the different obstacles I've seen most frequently and the science that suggests ways we can tackle each one. Uh, sure. And it's not, that, it's not that like you have only one. Most people have a few things that are probably working against change and they might need a, few, a recipe that includes a few ingredients. But um, it tries to be a little bit more sophisticated and, and thoughtful about the individual and, and hopefully that'll be helpful for lots of readers. Before I ask you to unpack that more and break down like some practical stuff, some tips, did you find that people had trouble recognizing the need for change? 
Oh, that's interesting. You know, um, I would say generally no. I think one of the most interesting things about talking about behavior change is that everyone, there's some place in everyone's life where they'd like to get better. So, you know, even the person you most admire, there's something they're working to change, whether it's, you know, holding their temper with their kids or uh, spending too much time on social media, (laughs) whatever it is, you know, we all have something, maybe it's not as, maybe some of us have more momentous things we want to change than others, but, but everybody's striving. I mean, that's, almost part of being human is to be working towards some goal, some, some aspiration to be better. I agree. And um, I don't mean to split hairs on this, but I guess the example that I was thinking in my mind was uh, last year I worked with a client who was great, but also a savage. And it was very difficult to work with him because he was the most narcissistic person I've ever met. And I'm sure he had lots of like, I want to improve this in my life stuff, but like um, not being as narcissistic was not one of them. Mm. But in my mind is like, bro, this is like priority one. <laughs> like you think the world revolves around you and this is a problem. It's like, you know, he just could not recognize it. Almost like to the point, um, the emperor has no clothes, that story, you know, marching around with no clothes on and every, it's like it was really brutal um and so as much as you know maybe you can't see it did you encounter any of that at all or is it just you have to be self-actualized and then be willing to do it no absolutely i think it's absolutely true that um while everyone has something they're aspiring to be better at it may not be the thing they should be aspiring to be better at that's that's certainly true self-awareness is not a trait that everyone has um what i'll say the book has sort of two ways of dealing with that the first way is it's it's really written for the reader who um has one of two goals one is they want to change themselves and they have some objective in mind it's not going to help your client figure out that he's a narcissist and that should be his goal to change. It's going to help him probably if he, if he reads it, hopefully um, fix whatever it is that he has settled upon as his biggest problem. So angle one is the person who has something they've already decided to change and, and they can go and tackle it with the book. The second angle though, is actually the outsider, the coach, the teacher, the manager, the consultant who um, sees an opportunity to help someone else change or some set of people, an organization maybe. Um, yeah. And and then the tools can be used either by the individual who says, I want to improve myself or by that sort of manager, coach, teacher, consultant who says, I want to help a set of people or an individual change. And then you would be able to use it, right, to say like, okay, I see, I see what the problem is that I want to change. I'd like this person to be less of a narcissist and I can see some of the obstacles to that. And I'm going to use the tools and the insights in this book and the science in this book to help. So it, it has those two audiences and yeah. um, happily, I think it's pretty easy to transition between the two because all the science really lends itself nicely to either angle. Yeah. So the criteria is that that person or organization must be willing or open-minded enough to want to change. So you know, I'll just give you a gift right here and now on this show, which is, Katie, your next book will be titled How to Get Other People to Change. <laughs> and you can write that book, and I, I give it to you royalty-free. It's it's my gift to you. Okay, well, now I'm, now I'm going to plug a different person's book, because I think that book has already been written by a dear um, friend and someone who I think, anyway, everyone would love to read the book if they haven't yet. Um, And that's Robert Cialdini. Um, His book, Influence, the Power of Persuasion, is Mm. 
Absolutely brilliant. And actually, a new edition of it is coming out on um, the same day as my book, May 4th. So we are, we're book buddies. And his book is really about how do you change, um, you know, how do you influence someone to make a different decision, uh, right? And, and, and my book is more, I want to change or I see a way to help someone change and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to facilitate it. So yeah. I think they go together very nicely. <laughs> I love it. And, and I love that you want to help friends. I think that's really well, nice. Well, it's a great book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that helps. I, I, when you were saying that, I thought, oh, yeah, there's Robert Greene's book, The 48 Laws, whatever. Um, anyway, uh, I was, I'm sort of... There are a lot of great books, actually, I think, that can fill. But anyway, I, pick, yeah. I would pick Bob Cialdini's. <laughs> yeah, I'm teasing you a little bit. Okay, so let's go back to practical tips that people could use to change. Um, can you unpack that last thought a little bit more and maybe walk through. So we identified uh, some areas you might want to change. It could be your personality. It could be, you know, you want to grow professionally in some direction. Um, Let's give some context with that and then teach us how to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the first thing you have to do is really understand why you're struggling to make progress on that dimension. So the um, natural opening chapter of the book is about when to change. So say that you have decided you would like to change, but you haven't quite gotten up the energy to start. So you have to sort of, you need some launch pad. What's going to get you over the hump to actually um, take it to the next level from an abstract idea to a, an, an action. Um, so I've written about some work I did on what I call the fresh start effect. Um, when there's a moment in your life that feels like a breaking point between chapters. And it turns out, by the way, the way we think about time in our lives is as if we are characters in a novel and and there are chapters separating, you know, the college years, the consulting years, (laughs) the years hosting behind the brand, um, you know, sort of depending on your life. Um, Whenever you open a new chapter, and it can be, by the way, as small as the start of a week or more momentous, like celebrating a birthday, starting a new year, starting a new job, moving to a new city or home. All those moments make us feel like we have a fresh start and a clean slate because we have this new beginning in our lives. Whatever wasn't working for us before, we sort of think that was the old me and this is the new me and the new me can do it. Uh, and we also tend to step back and think bigger picture at those moments because they're breaking points and they and they just cause us to sort of step back from the mundane of every day and, and think about our goals. Those are really good moments to kickstart change. And so the first sort of lesson is think about when is going to be a moment that's motivating. Maybe, maybe it's already with you and that's why you picked up the book in the first place, but maybe you're just thinking, I have an inkling I might want to change and you have to figure out when. Um, and one of those moments can do it. So a, a follow-up question is, you're like I know instinctually, or at least from experience, that when I am starving, I should not go to the grocery store. That is a bad time to go shopping. It's tr- uh, You want to know the nerd term for that? Yeah. It's called the hot-cold empathy gap or projection bias. And it's right, because you're if you're starving, you're going to buy too much junk food because you'll yeah. project that you're always going to be this hungry and buy all of the Cheetos. Yeah, or, you know, if I just broke up with my girlfriend, I shouldn't go, you know, on a shopping spree, whatever. So my question really with context is, um, if I've had sort of trauma or something traumatic, life-changing, is this the time to be making big decisions? Is this the time to capitalize on that, like time for a fresh start? Or should I pause and sort of let the dust settle a little bit before I start. 
That's a really great question. Yeah, and that um, I've written about this a little bit with um, Jack Saul, a professor at Duke, and what we call is um, we talk about being decision ready. Uh, are you sort of in a state of mind where you really feel like you can step back and reflect and be calm, cool, and collected, and at your best for making whatever plans or decisions that you you face? And it could be you know time pressure that means you're not decision ready, fatigue, or emotional. Um, trauma, all of those things. Yeah. yeah. All of those things. Yeah. Your finances are a mess. All of those things are mm-hmm. a red flag on making a really big decision that has major consequences. So, you know, if all you're trying to do is like get into a gym routine or something, I wouldn't say you got to, I've got to caution you against that at this moment. But if yeah. it's a bigger life decision, like I want to pivot to a new career um, or moving to a new city or uh, spending time with a different group of friends or making a major financial investment, then those moments when you're in a hot state, you're probably not decision ready. And so it's not a good idea. Okay. Great. Carry on then. Okay. So, all right. So I talked a little bit about the fresh start effect. So that's sort of the getting started problem. Um, Let me move to one of my other favorite mistakes people make when they're trying to change. Uh, And it's probably one of my favorites because I make it so often. And that is that it's really common when you have some big new ambition, some big new goal to think just as Nike has taught us to, I'm going to just do it. Like, let me find the most effective way to push through to this new goal and go for it that way. Whether it's, and I, you know, I use a lot of gym examples because I think of that as like, I cannot, everybody can relate to like trying to build a workout routine, but you can port this to anything. So say you want to start a, an exercise habit, you go walk into the gym and you're like, let me find the most intense workout that will get me to my goal. I'm going to do, you know, the Stairmaster as hard as I can. That's that's a really common decision that people would make. It turns out that a better way to approach a big new goal and and try to figure out what to do first is actually to try to figure out how to do it in the way that's most fun. And the reason for that is a lot of us don't achieve our goals, not all of us, but a lot of goals we don't achieve because they feel like a chore. And we yeah. tend to overweight how unpleasant it is to do the thing, eat the healthy food, you know, make the grit, you know, grit through working on the new project proposal, <laughs> work out on the Stairmaster. We, we focus on that immediate gratification. And if it's not feeling good, we don't persist. Mm-hmm. So if we can find ways to pursue our goals that actually feel good in the moment that are fun, we're much more likely to persist. I think this is a really important insight because it's intuitive at some level, but most of us still don't do it the right way. Um, so if you you know go to the gym and you do Zumba, you're going to have a great time and you're much more likely to come back because that wasn't an aversive experience. And in, in the long run, we tend to overweight those immediate experiences. It's what leads us to say, eh, I don't really want to go to the gym. I'm going to sit on the couch. That Stairmaster sounds bad in the heat of the moment, even though we want to build that routine. So um, making it fun is critically important. And I, I wrote about some of my research on one way to do that, which I call temptation bundling. And I'm happy to talk more about that or go somewhere else. So let me pause for a second and see if you want to get a word in edgewise. Yeah, I, I want to hear about the temptation bundling, bundling. That sounds fascinating. But what do you do when let's go back to me for example in my college math class absolutely hated it because i wasn't great at math but like if i had the goal to be an an engineer uh i have to do math right so how do you how do you um push through the things that are not that fun to get to the to the reward that you actually want 
That's a fantastic uh, question. Okay, but I'm going to turn around on you. Okay. Because, you know, Socratic method and all. Um, I, how, w- how could you imagine making it more fun to do an unpleasant math class? What could you do that would make it more fun when you're doing your problem sets? Hmm. I literally cannot think of any way to make math fun. I mean, actually, when I was a kid, um, learning basic arithmetic, when I, we had a computer, and I did these computer games, and that was actually pretty fun. Like I would blast the numbers, and you know, and I got quite good at memorizing my multiplication tables that way. Um, but I, I don't know if they have that game for algebra or trigonometry, you know, like or all the other high math that you need to take. They're actually gamification is a great answer, and that that doesn't necessarily make the the activity itself fun, but it makes yeah. it it have it's sort of surrounded with the trappings of fun, and I think that's a good solution for math. Um, I'll give you other ideas. One is that you could uh, invite friends over for a study group, and mm. you know work for 10 minutes alone on a problem or 15 minutes alone and then check in with each other and give yourselves little breaks to chat. Um, you can sort of surround the experience with things that, that you value, like only let yourself eat a favorite meal when you're working on a math assignment or this is one I loved. Someone told me they, <laughs> they worked through their dissertation. They really into scented aromatherapy candles and only mm. burned them while they were working on their dissertation. This got them through. So yeah. there are sort of different ways go work in a really nice environment that makes you feel relaxed, like outside um, on a park bench. So there's different ways you can change the environment, play music that you like to make it feel more enjoyable. And, um, and all of those things are ways that I've heard about people trying to use and apply this concept. Yeah, it makes sense. You have to reward yourself, like you said, find the enjoyment in it. Um, Yeah, I think part of the challenge of being younger is I think it's sometimes hard to see what's around the bend that you can't see, Uh, especially when you're really young. You know, you you can't think till you can't think about tomorrow. All you can think about is today, right now, two minutes from now. and I but guess- adults, by the way, are wired just like kids. We totally appreciate that in our kids and say, like, yeah, they can't, they can't focus on the future. It has to be enjoyable now. But, but we make the mistake of assuming that as adults we should be able to grin and bear it and push through because we have that prefrontal cortex that's fully developed. But we aren't wired that differently from our kids. <laughs> it's still really hard for us, and, and we just, like, misforecast how much we're going to value that instant gratification and Anyway, I think I, I sometimes talk about the Mary Poppins effect because I think that movie so nicely illustrates like she gets that it has to be fun. A chore won't get done if it isn't fun. Yeah. But we don't appreciate the same thing about ourselves as adults and we should. And if we just sort of get the lesson of Mary Poppins and apply it to all ages, we could be much more effective and persistent. Yeah. And then, of course, there's that classic marshmallow test, right, where you defer instant gratification. All right, so tell me about the temptation bundle. I want to hear more about that. Yeah, well, we actually got into it a little bit already with the math. Really, the idea there is that um, one way to motivate yourself to do something that feels like a chore is by linking it with something that you find tremendously tempting and enjoyable. So you can create these bundles that basically make it alluring to do whatever it is you've been dreading. So, you know, if you really hate doing household chores, only letting yourself listen to your favorite podcast or, uh, you know, attempting audiobook while you're doing those household chores or cooking can be a way to make it actually pleasant to get things done in your home. Or uh, likewise, you can bundle your favorite TV show, only let yourself binge watch it while you're exercising at the gym, Uh, only pick up your favorite 
drink from Starbucks that's not terribly good for you uh, or whatever other treat you crave, your donut, you know, pick your poison um, <laughs> on your way to hit the books if you're a student trying to study harder. So there are all different ways that we can use this idea, but it, but really it's just to link a temptation and only let yourself have it, have that indulgence with something that's good for you so that suddenly that thing that's that's been a chore becomes alluring in and of itself. Let's get a little bit personal. So what's something that you've had to push through or gamify or uh, incentivize yourself? What have you had to do to push through something difficult? Well, for me, this actually came straight out of my own struggles to exercise more as a grad student. When I was an engineering grad student, I'd have these really long days of classes, come home, knew I needed to hit my, you know, problem sets, get right into it. And all I wanted to do was curl up on the couch with, you know, I love novels. I'm, I was a big Harry Potter fan. So I wanted to, or like pick up the latest Alex Cross from James Patterson. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of page turners. Um, but that was not productive. I also, I'm, I was a, an athlete all throughout my childhood and played varsity tennis in college. So athletics are really important to me. And I basically sort of a mess if I'm not exercising, <laughs> like just an emotional mess. And I knew that, but I couldn't motivate myself to get to the gym at the end of the long day. I just wanted to indulge and I couldn't motivate myself to do my problem sets. I was spending all this time on fiction. And so I realized, oh, like maybe I could solve these problems logically. What if I only let myself read the next piece, pages of my page turner while I'm exercising. And that just was like this magic cure for me. Suddenly I would find myself craving trips to the gym at the end of a long day. Um, I'd get in a great workout. I enjoyed it because time would fly. And I, I didn't even feel guilty reading the novel suddenly because I was doing it to get to the gym. And then I'd get home and I was totally ready to work because I had that energy boost from the exercise and I'd already gotten my pleasure reading out of the way. So for me, that was miraculous. And I realized, okay, one, I should study and test and see if this could help other people. And also it's broader than this particular application. There's probably lots of ways we can solve multiple problems for ourselves around self-control at once. Um, yeah, I love that. Um, switching gears just a little bit, because I just want to maybe indulge you and ask this question about fiction versus nonfiction. So in a previous interview, I talked to a big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, and Laird surfs like 50 to 80 foot waves. Like he's the guy that risks his life uh, and does this kind of amazing athletic work, but he's also very cerebral. And um, he and I both, you know, there's a little Venn diagram that we both enjoy um, reading but we enjoy reading nonfiction more than we enjoy reading fiction. And because I said it feels indulgent. And you should have seen the comments blow up like, how dare you? Uh, fiction is so important. And just everyone, you know, carrying torches and, and, and pitchforks towards me. And I said, no, 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 no. I love fiction. It's important. I just, I feel guilty consuming it. So I get a lot of my fiction in movies. After all, I came from the movie business. Um, by the way, which house are you in Harry Potter? Where, 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 where would you sit? And probably what do you think? A, I'm probably a Hufflepuff. I was going to say that. <laughs> and how about me? What do you think? Um, I would say, oh my gosh, that's hard. I don't feel like I know you well enough to say that. Take a, take a guess. I won't be offended. Maybe Ravenclaw if you feel guilty reading fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad guess. I, I think I'm kind of Gryffindor, but... Gryffindor, uh, okay. Yeah, but... You're anyway. an adventurer. <laughs> So can you weigh on that, weigh in on that as someone who writes um, 
nonfiction. Yeah. But, why but is it who, that we? Why is it that we feel guilty reading fiction? Is that no, no? Let's reinforce. <laughs> um, let's go I was back. Because I can tell you. <laughs> well, I would it. like to hear that answer too. But I guess my question is: let's let's reinforce how important your fiction, your work in fiction, has been to help you write nonfiction. Um, in some ways, I want to go back and do some some um, damage control. But no, I also, you know, as someone who writes a lot, um, I want to hear that from your perspective. Like, how important is fiction? I just finished watching, for example, the uh, the Hemingway documentary on PBS uh, with Ken Burns and, and Lynn Novick. It's brilliant. Oh, wonderful! You know? So good. I mean, I love fiction. I going back to the start of this interview, I was telling you about how as an undergraduate, actually, that was an example of temptation bundling. I had to write this thesis for my engineering major. And I was like, how can I how can I read fiction for this thesis? I know, I'll read a decade of New Yorker fiction, I'll statistically analyze it, I found a way to connect these this thing I loved. And just yeah. just like, again, then I bundled fiction with exercise. So um, I obviously love it. Uh, it turns out, you know, it. I do think it is incredibly important because if we want to communicate effectively with other people, we have to have empathy and fiction teaches us empathy. And it also um, is the case that whether we want to communicate about um, stories that, of things that happened uh, that have lessons in them or when we want to communicate about science, we need to make it matter to people. There's research showing that, for instance, if you communicate about a single identifiable victim who's experienced something, you can raise money more successfully for ch a charity that would, would help them than if you talk about all of the people who have been impacted by this incident, right? So starvation, for instance, if you talk about all the people starving, um, that's not nearly as impactful as telling the story of one person who's starving because of the way we connect with mm -hmm. with stories. And we learn through stories too. And so um, when I wrote my book and wanted to sit down and communicate all of the science about how to change, I realized for anyone to not be bored to tears, of course, and to really internalize the lessons and remember them, I needed stories that would bring them to life. And so I think fiction is wonderful. It gives us um, it gives us empathy for other people's experiences, but it teaches us also how to weave the stories and the narratives that will allow us to communicate about anything. Yeah, I agree. I, as you were saying that, I was also thinking about, well, several of my favorite movies, but also Joseph Campbell and, you know, uh, fiction also helps us use metaphors and analogies and allegories, which is really just a clever and creative way to hold up a mirror to either ourselves or society, and 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 talk about subjects. Even going, you know, thinking about Shakespeare and his commentary on human behavior um, and on life in general. It's so interesting. So much can be learned, right? Oh my gosh, absolutely! And you know, as a behavioral scientist, right, like so many of the insights that that we write about and that we study scientifically are right there in fiction in in Shakespeare and Jane Austen right it's it's all in there and then yeah. we're just sort of like pick, oh i i see they've they've noticed this peculiarity about human nature given it to this character and then we we study it and say oh it's a systematic feature of human behavior and that's why it's so compelling when this yeah. character exacerbates it or excuse me when this character um exhibits it in in an extreme because we recognize yeah. ourselves in them. And maybe maybe this is a lesson for our friends who have products or services, you know, in the same way that you took um, a lot of research, which could have been probably a 900-page textbook, and you turn it into a very entertaining nonfiction book that's meant to educate. We, we can tell stories in that way, um, in a very interesting and unique way, 
and it doesn't have to be about features and benefits or the technicalities. It can be sort of more case-study-driven case or more story-driven. Uh, this show is also called Behind the Brand, so I, I'm curious and I, I like to ask my guests about their personal brand. So what is the Katie Milkman brand? And let's also talk about what, what you think a brand is and, and the purpose. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, first, my husband will laugh that you said I had a personal brand because he – Anyway, he will laugh. Um, so, but I love that. I love the question. Um, well, wait, I need to know why. What's the context <laughs> behind it? What's the inside joke? Oh, well, I'm married to an astrophysicist, and okay. um, I think the concept of, you know, to him, he's searching for whether there's life out there in the universe, and you know how how literally he's searching for whether there's life out there in the universe and like how old is the universe and how mm -hmm. do stars form and i think the concept you know we're so small relative to those giant things and those giant time scales that um sometimes when colleagues from my my life right or my students talk about personal brands i think it makes him laugh because he's thinking on these giant you know what is a personal brand compared to the scope of the universe right <laughs> that's just, way yeah. to anyway, so he'll appreciate that um Okay, so what is my personal brand? Well, I, I hope that uh, what I'm doing uh, and that what people recognize in, in what I'm doing, both in this book and the podcast I host called Choiceology, um, is communicating about useful science that's also really fundamentally interesting and, and doesn't have a no-duh flavor. <laughs> so I do think, you know, some science, you read it and you say, like, I didn't need to read the science to know that. Um, but I hope there's an insight that wouldn't have come naturally to people and that can make their lives better. So, so when I'm communicating about science, I hope that that's my brand, that it's engaging, it's interesting, and it, it sparks something that you wouldn't have realized otherwise. And you see how, how we got there. So I do like to explain what was the experiment that was done to test whether or not this is true. Uh, so you can see for yourself and evaluate for yourself. Oh, that, first of all, that's a really interesting and clever way to test it. it. Gives me other interesting ideas about the world. And second, I can I can sort of oh, do I buy it? <laughs> do I think it'll work for me given how it's been tested? Um, and then the other part of my brand, you know, I am a practicing scientist. I run a center uh, at the University of Pennsylvania called the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, where we're trying to do. I, you know, some of the most innovative work out there on um, the science of behavior change. We're doing massive experiments in partnership with some of the world's largest organizations to try to figure out how to help people save more, how to help them eat healthier and exercise more regularly and um, study more effectively. And so um, probably more important than my, my brand as a communicator to me is my brand as a scientist doing research that hopefully will make the world a better place and that will outlive me in its impact. I love that. I love that you have it so articulate and succinct. It's it's great. Um, a follow-up to that, two questions. One is, what's one thing uh, while writing the book that you were really surprised to learn? Uh, and then the, the second question that I'll leave you to sort of marinate on while you're giving that answer is, what is something that you believed maybe five years ago you can determine the actual timestamp, but you know, years ago that you no longer believe something you held on to as a belief five years ago that you now has been myth busted or you don't believe that anymore. Can they be the same answer? Sure. <laughs> you, can okay? try. you can try. Them. Uh, okay. So first of all, 
the thing that's a little weird about me writing the book is I knew the things I was going to write in the book before I wrote it because, again, it, it came from this sort of 20-year career. So when I answer the question of what surprised me in writing the book, it's really what surprised me in my career that I then wrote about in the book. Um, and I'm going to tell you about a study that surprised me, a research study that surprised me and, and intrigued me uh, and changed the way I think about the world. And it was research that was led by a, a woman named Lauren Eskris Winkler. She's um, about to start a faculty position at the Kellogg School at Northwestern in, in um, July. And she had been studying grit with my collaborator, um, bestselling author Angela Duckworth. She was Angela's doctoral student. And Angela and Lauren were really interested in the question of what makes people gritty and how to make people gritty and more persistent. So she was interviewing all these people who were struggling to achieve their goals, people, you know, sales men and women who weren't selling as much as they wanted, um, struggling students, people who wanted to quit smoking, you get the idea. And, and she noticed something really interesting, which is that even though they weren't doing very well, they all had really good insights about what they should be doing. And she realized, you know, we spend a lot of our time when we talk to someone who's struggling, coaching them on how to be better and saying like, here, let me put my arm around you and give you some advice. Um, and that's actually pretty demoralizing because if you've ever been on the receiving end, it's like, oh, you think I'm such a doofus that I've never thought of this before. You're telling me you're two seconds off the top of your mind, this problem that I've been struggling with, how you would approach it if you were me. So it's demoralizing. And often they kind of know already how to go about doing it. So she thought, what if we flip the script? What if instead of giving people advice, we actually asked people who were trying to achieve more if they could coach someone else? And maybe that would actually be really effective because maybe it would boost their confidence. Suddenly they'd realize um, somebody's looking up to me and thinks I know what I'm talking about. So anyone who's struggling with that confidence obstacle might suddenly feel okay, maybe I've got what it takes. And maybe they'd also introspect and think about things that would work for them and then describe those. And they might not might dredge up insights they wouldn't have otherwise. And finally, maybe they would uh, feel funny telling someone else to do something and not doing it themselves. Because after you've, you've said something, like it's going to be kind of hip, hypocritical if you don't walk the talk. So what really surprised me is that I'd always had that wrong model, the one that she realized was wrong of, um, I, you know, if some if student comes to me for advice, the best thing I can do is coach them. And obviously, you know, I wrote a book, which is for coaching people. So I haven't completely abandoned coaching. But um, I've realized how powerful it can be to encourage people to become coaches themselves when they're struggling. And I learned, um, I have my older doctoral students often mentor my younger ones. They work together on projects so they can become coaches. I'm part of an advice club um, where a series of faculty, we all go to each other when we're looking for insights, but we also coach each other. So it's this circular relationship. And I, I've gotten a ton from the advice I've solicited, but I've also learned a lot from the opportunity I've had to reflect on other people's challenges and, and offer advice, which then helps me when I face similar challenges. And uh, Lauren's research has shown indeed that when we put people in the position of an advice giver, it substantially improves their own outcomes on achieving a goal. So I would say the, the big surprise was that I had the formula wrong. When somebody was trying to achieve more, I thought like, 
you know, put your arm around them, give them some guidance and send them on their way. And what I've realized is actually giving them the chance to dredge up those insights and to mentor others can be a really powerful approach too. And that often the insight is inside and it just needs to be brought out and the confidence needs to be boosted through that kind of experience. And of course, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and the sponsorship program is one example, but many organizations sort of know this intuitively and are using this. Brilliant. My mind is going, it's also kind of the Socratic method too, right? <laughs> exactly. It, it absolutely you know. is, right? It's it's like when you hear these some of these things, you're like, oh, okay, it makes sense. It's not like a totally out of the blue crazy idea, yeah. but we hadn't applied it in quite the right way. Yeah, it's just an, another reminder that everything and nothing has changed, right? <laughs> Thousands of years. We're still grappling with basically the same things. Absolutely. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up. Reminiscing about the good old days and all that, you know, tracking my roots, where I came from and where I'm going. But like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination. It's all about the journey. Ain't nothing changed but the weather. The dangling carrot it hang from the rear view uh -huh. Your dreams in the past ain't nowhere near you Backseat drivers got nothing but two cents Shotgun riders too biased, they all liars I should get an A for effort, I'm too tired But I'm never giving up, that's why I'm kinda admired Role model, like it or not, I gotta play it Sugarcoat the rhyme sometimes, but still say it Said I was quitting at 40, it's just a fib I'm still a kid that's wiping the food off of my bib You ever wanted something so bad that you could taste it? Cried over every opportunity wasted yeah. good and bad news which one you want first either way you pick the bad still gonna hurt you to work